It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, my name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Thank you for being on with us today. Yes, thank you everybody for coming and joining us. This is Vax Talk. It is the podcast for people who prefer not to get polio. Once again, that means the podcast for everybody. Did you like the alliteration though? There, that is really good. There's a lot of good alliteration to be done in, in vaccines. And yes, in particular polio. Mm-hmm. Particularly. Particularly polio, which we prefer not to get. Practically perfect in every way. <laughs> Today we have a great guest on. We have Rotary International's polio expert, Carol Pandek, who is going to talk to us about uh, Rotary's efforts to eliminate polio from the globe. And whose last name starts with P. Probably why she got the job. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited for that interview. And um, we have lots of updates to give. So I'm going to hand it over to Nathan for around the web which oh, i'm man. putting in quotation marks because it's not very webby go ahead <laughs> i'm going to preface this by saying that i've been on vacation so i have not had the time to write down all the chronological order and details of what's been going on but i was going to talk about sb 276 which is the bill in california that we've talked about i believe on the show before but it is kind of the next step after sb277 which was a couple of years ago the bill in california that got rid of all non-medical exemptions for school children uh in the state basically uh sb276 now what has happened in the interim is that a unsurprisingly a relatively small number of unscrupulous physicians have been writing the lion's share of quote-unquote medical exemptions basically for people who want to get their kids exempted from vaccines and still send their kids to school and so it's set up a little bit of a cottage industry and sb276 is helping to crack down the intent of the bill is to help crack down on this and i am going to probably mess up some of the details of the bill but the upshot is that it uh allows it, it allows the public health department to review exemptions and basically approve or deny them based on the criteria set forth by CDC because they have a set of contraindications and precautions for vaccines that are evidence-based. A lot of you listening to this know this. And then in the, what has happened in the more recent, you know, last, last month we had the celebrity update. We talked about some celebrities. We now have kind of a big celebrity update. So we have this kind of political celebrity mishmash update um, where Actress Jessica Biel was in with RFK Jr. talking to state uh, congresspeople about this bill and um, put out some photos and whatnot and then had to kind of walk that back a bit where she did the usual like, well, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm just against this bill. But then another story that was released that talked to one of the staffers 
uh, quoted the staffer as saying that Beal and RFK Jr. said all of these very anti-vaccine things about how dangerous vaccines are. So this prompted a whole lot of internet kerfuffle about because Jessica Beal is then married to Justin Timberlake and all kinds of memes that involve NSYNC and I might have tweeted one of those. <laughs> and so that's kind of the celebrity side of it. And on the other celebrity side of it, we then had new engagement from both Kristen Bell uh, uh, who has been very pro-vaccine, one of the biggest pro-vaccine celebrities uh, in the past, and her husband, Dax Shepard, um, in support of the bill and a new, renewed push kind of pushing back about misinformation on the internet about vaccines. So that was really nice to see. The bill, as I understand it, was kind of, there was some concern that the governor, I believe Governor Newsom, uh, was not entirely, he's a Democratic governor, uh, I don't think he was entirely on board and, and had some quote about being concerned about bureaucrats getting in the way of a doctor's job or whatever, which is funny because I don't think any, very few doctors are worried about the public health department right. in this case, like getting in the way of anything. I, when I think about like, hmm, the public health department making sure that immunization exemptions are legitimate. Do I feel like that's a great onus upon my, a great, a great barrier to my ability to practice as a pediatrician? No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but, you know, the, the governor was concerned about that. And then there were some amendments made to the bill that made it, that some people are a little disappointed, but I still think the bill is great. So I believe they've made it so that unless you'll only get reviewed if you're somebody who's writing, I believe more than five exemptions a year and or in school districts where they have a lower than a certain percent threshold for vaccination rates, then those will trigger a review. I still think it's a pretty great bill to help reduce the amount of A, to make sure that doctors are not doing what it amounts to essentially fraudulent exemptions, getting people to come to your clinic, pay you basically under the assumption that you will write this exemption that they want, find a way, find something to call a contraindication, um, and also to make sure that immunization rates are, are up around that state and that kids are protected. So that is as good of a review as I can do of that situation off the top of my head. You missed one part, though. I bet I did. That's that there's a bizarro hue. Um, and a Bizarro podcast co-hosted by... Oh, yes, Bizarro yes, yes. How could I forget? And his name is Dr. Bob Sears. It's, it's, it's alt-vax doc. Yeah, so during one of the hearings for this bill, I don't remember if it was in a, it was a subcommittee or what it was, it, you know, it's so interesting. We've said this before, but sometimes the anti-vaccine movement are their worst enemies, right? They, they get all organized, and then when they're up in front of the mic when they're trying to maintain a veneer of this is about rights and this is about this, they get the people up there who dominate the microphone who have just the worst arguments that may be just some of the worst conspiracy arguments that there are about vaccines. But also they put, they had RFK Jr. there uh, who could certainly speak, but they got Bob Sears up there first and they only had so much time at this hearing for the entire side to talk. And Bob Sears gets up there and basically tries to defend himself because a couple of years ago he was served, uh, he was, he had his license put on probation because of accusations of misconduct, of gross negligence uh, that have to do with not just writing a vaccine exemption for a patient that didn't appear to be indicated, but also mishandling other parts of that person's medical care, of that child's medical care, 
Um, you can read the details of that, but it's, it's pretty shocking. The lack of good care that this case demonstrated that he provided. Um, so his license is on probation for that. I don't remember the duration of the probation, but he has to have his chart. You know, he gets audited every once in a while and some other things. He's just basically being watched to see if he can get his license essentially reinstated in full. So that's ongoing right now. So they brought him to talk at this hearing and he gets up there and basically defends how how badly he's been treated. It takes all of the time, <laughs> like most of the time when people could actually try to make an argument for their side, he makes an argument for himself. And um, basically right after that, or maybe before that, but right as this is happening, he's just been served with a second. The Medical Board of California has has an, another, I forget what the term is, but basically an accusation that they are now investigating a second set of allegations regarding siblings in which there were inappropriate exemptions for vaccination and also other problematic aspects to their care. None of these are just about um, immunization exemptions. There are also these cases in which there's clear negligence going on in general about how he's taking care of patients, how he's documenting and et cetera. Um, so all of that's going on all together. I cannot imagine a, a, a worse person to put up there and speak for your side than the number one person who is in the media about medical, like inappropriate, uh, vaccine exemptions and getting investigated for gross negligence right <laughs> their own worst enemies sometimes they they truly are and it's it's kind of sad because it wasn't just that but you know whenever the anti-vaccine movement does something i always think if i were on their side how would i do it now i'm not right. going to tell you how i would do right, this right, right. because this is a public podcast no i do this i do the same exercise yes but it would not be by getting up and claiming that they're going to harm my children right and it would not be by afterwards when it passes committee going and singing what song did they sing some religious song oh, i don't know i didn't the... pay attention to that part <laughs> yeah it was um i forget which song it was but they sang a religious song in the rotunda of their state capitol and i'm thinking you know you're trying to make the case that your child has a medical exemption that's going to go away and it's legitimate maybe don't tie it to your personal beliefs yeah but on the other hand that moment for me was really poignant because as much as i disagree with them and i'm glad that this bill is going forward and i think it should be everywhere um i, f I feel really bad because they do genuinely feel an existential threat from vaccines and it's not just health but it's a threat to like how they identify themselves and their core beliefs and so it, it was it was a little poignant to me where it was like gosh I kind of feel bad for you but at the same time I don't feel bad enough that I think it's okay for you to spread measles right if you're gonna talk to me about the concern about this the only real concern that I have is I feel bad that kids may be denied school services right. based on the poor decision of the parent. Okay, so right. I, I, don't, I feel bad that the kid suffers doubly, that they're not protected, and if the parent mm -hmm. still refuses to immunize, they can't go to school. I feel bad for that child. I don't feel 
bad for the parent who's making that decision. I feel bad that they are making the decision, but I feel bad for that child. And certainly you can pull on my heartstring a little bit and say, <laughs> uh, this kid really should, why should this kid not be able to go to school? But for the anti-vaccine movement to do that, that also means that they're saying, why shouldn't my kid be able to go to school when I'm choosing to do this? And it's, it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> I mean, I guess it would be like saying, you know, we really think that tobacco is medicinal Mm -hmm. and we think that our children should be allowed to smoke at school. (laughs) I mean, no, (laughs) that's that's a threat to the other children. So if your child's going to do that, they can't come to school. Mm -hmm. They they can be a smoker. Actually, they can't be. It's not legal. But, um, you know, theoretically, smoke where you want to, but not at school. Be unvaccinated where you want to, but not at school. Yeah. (laughs) The really good article, going back to the stuff on Jessica Biel and RFK Jr., um, was by Anna Merlin in a Jezebel. So if you Google Mm -hmm. that, there's the the, the really good, the article that goes over what um, kind of stuff the the, the, the staffer said and whatnot. So. Well, I'm going to do my uh, around the web, which is actually around my real actual personal experience um, and not on the web. Thank goodness. Mm. Those were all air quotes. I was doing the whole thing. I'm sure there's things on the web about this that we can find. I went to ACIP again, Nathan, Mm -hmm. because I'm a glutton for all sorts of punishments. Mm -hmm. This time around, I won the lottery to give a public comment. So this is how this works. When you register for ACIP, you register to go, and then you're given the chance to enter a lottery to give a public comment while you're there. You can also, anyone can submit a written comment to ACIP that gets put on the record. And the anti-vaccine people have been using ACIP and this public comment period to legitimize their comments that they're making against vaccines. And I I just want to be very clear that these people are not what we think of as our vaccine hesitant parents or our parents who, uh, you know, are Mm -hmm. against vaccines, but, you know, in their own minds. Um, These are people who are vaccine opponents and publicly proselytize about it. And so they've been using this public comment period to say, here's my speech at CDC, is how they are framing that, which I guess is accurate because they're at CDC and they're making a speech, but they weren't invited to CDC. (laughs) Now, per the ACIP rules, when people make a public comment at CDC, Mm -hmm. the ACIP committee members are not allowed to respond. And so yeah. all, all manner of statements are made and they just sit there like a big turd on the floor <laughs> and everyone just walks around them and pretends like, you know, someone didn't put a turd on the floor. I was happy to get my public comment slot. I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to say. Within this context, of course, the, uh, the BBC, the New York Times, the AP and an independent documentary filmmaker were all also there with their cameras and their notepads and their AV equipment and their staff. There was all manner of 
media there. Mm. So it was a little extra circusy. And I had actually spoken to the BBC and the independent documentary filmmaker ahead of schedule, and they had talked me into um, being on camera. I was mic'd for the documentary um, the entire time I was there, which was a little <laughs> unsettling. Hmm. Um, and BBC, I had a, a short interview with on the end of the first day. My public comment was on the second day. And uh, the first day's public comments were what you would expect. One group of women gave an impassioned plea about SIDS and they, you know, held up pictures of babies who had died from SIDS and claimed that they had died from vaccines. And then they held up a giant poster that showed the list of vaccines in 1983 versus the list of vaccines in 2019. Uh, so that's that's the kind of speechifying that was made there there were um the most upsetting part to the public comments that they made for me were that there were multiple mothers of autistic children who described their children's bathrooming habits Jeez. and and sometimes in kind of sarcastic ways that just mm -hmm. really felt like it really diminished the dignity of that child and it was yeah. it was hard to listen to a child be talked about that way. But then day two came. Now, the blessing about day two for me is that at the time of public comments, Del Bigtree had decided at that exact same moment to be off campus doing his internet TV show. And <laughs> so all of the anti-vaccine people, except the ones scheduled for public comments, had left. And so it was oh, me... Nice like just a tiny handful of, of anti-vaccine people, all of their children for some reason. And I um, scored the first slot on the second day. And my comment to the ACIP was in essence, first of all, I planned it to be shorter than the three minutes allotted. That's my hint to everybody who's ever given a scheduled amount of time to speak. Right. Go 30 seconds under end before you're told that your time is up. Mm -hmm. It just goes much better for everyone. Anything you can say in three minutes, you can say in two and a half minutes. Yeah. And so what I what I said to the ACIP was that parents rely on ACIP to use science and evidence to make a schedule to vaccinate their children so they don't have to think about how and when to vaccinate their children. They can rely on experts to help them see them through that. But the issue I had with what was going on in the room was that people were using the ACIP and the CDC as a platform. At the exact same time, they're being deplatformed by private organizations. These people are using the CDC as a platform to legitimize anti-science propaganda and myths and fraudulent statements and sometimes outright lies. And that... Um, that the ACIP needed to have real-time responses to misinformation given and that that needed to be on the record. So that was my comment. It's a good comment. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I uh, didn't make friends with anti-vaccine people with that comment. Yeah. I haven't watched my comment, but apparently there were some faces being made. But I will tell you that there were... <laughs> Things being said underneath their breath right behind me. One woman was trying to shove a phone in my face. 
um, they were basically heckling me, being like, no, that's not true, and, you know, kind of hissing under their breath. And then when I was done and I was walking down, someone actually booed me. I got booed. Wow. Um, <laughs> right? And I was just sort of like, I was treated better in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> I gave a 20-minute speech that was only supposed to be three minutes long about the JFK assassination in my seventh grade English <laughs> class, and people were more polite to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't say that to discourage anyone from giving a public comment. I, I, I will be there for you if you give a public comment. Um, and there were people who were there for me when I gave a public comment. Mm-hmm. But I will say that... Um, Security did kindly insist that when I left, that they accompany me for my own protection. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. But no one has noticed that I made this public comment, which was great because my intended audience was ACIP. I was not doing it for any cameras in the room. I wasn't mm-hmm. doing it for the people sitting behind me. And, you know, I was doing it for people at ACIP being like, just trying to tell them, be bold correct misinformation let's let's make this be a place of science and that was my whole goal we'll see if i made it i think that's such an important message because there are a lot of resources and things like semi-legitimate things that the anti-vaccine movement love to exploit and try to make it seem legitimate. So I'm mm-hmm. talking about things like in some medical journals where there's like a rapid response system that right. when it's published in the medical, they'll publish about any comment and it looks in a format that makes it almost seem like it's a published quote unquote thing. Like it's actually been reviewed and published when in reality it's just some, you know, person writing and and they put it on the website as a response to an article or whatever and it legitimizes it that's true about some news services too and the way that they use um, press releases that are hosted Mm -hmm. by places like nbc Mm -hmm. or whatnot that look like when when it's up there it's really just their press release their paid press release but it's uh it, it looks like it's an nbc news article or something at least if you don't look a little bit closer and right. so when you see that when you see, especially when it's, it's it's disheartening when medical publications allow that without response and if we're going to get on social media for cracking down on misinformation i would really like to see these publications and bodies whose job it is to promote good information scientific information Mm -hmm. to also take steps to make sure that that stuff is not happening oh for sure i would argue that it's actually more important for them to do so because Mm -hmm. people now can spot oh that's someone's blog or that's facebook but the moment they see something from you know, I think it's CNN I report or, mm-hmm. you know, the the rapid response section of a medical journal, the British Medical Journal or Lancet yeah. or or again, here's my speech at the CDC. Mm-hmm. It, it you know, it's, it's harder for people to understand. No, that's not someone's speech at the CDC or no, that's not someone's publication in a medical journal. It's just their comment that anyone can make. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's uh, it's almost like you'd like to just have a big asterisk over their head while they're talking. This isn't <laughs> this is not condoned by the CDC. They're not saying this. So, yeah, good message. Thank you. And I'm glad you made it out safely. <laughs> you know, 
I was told my first year of teaching that the most important people in the school are the people who clean the school and mm-hmm. the people who are at the front desk of the school and that <laughs> and that you should make very good friends with them. And I'll tell you, as a parent of children now who go to school, I know yes. the people who clean my kids' schools and I know mm-hmm. the people at the front desk. And it, it's a great philosophy but it's the same thing no matter where you go so when i head into the cdc if there are people doing security i get to know them i'm like hey hi how are you you know it's it's good to know the people who actually make things function and without whom we couldn't get by and that's you know security people it's people at a front desk and so you know that's just my philosophy on life but i think um having gotten to know the security people over a few days that it it was good to have them around cool um and i do want to mention a couple of important discussions took place at cdc including a very complicated discussion about the hpv vaccine and what to do about that whether to Um, just harmonize the recommendation, uh, which means that before the ACIP vote, it was, you know, the catch-up schedule is for men up through 21 and women up through 26. So the harmonizing would just make it everyone up through 26, regardless of gender. And then the second was whether or not to recommend it for women up through age 45 and how to make that recommendation. And it was incredibly complex and I had a really interesting discussion with uh, Sharon Humiston from Immunization Action Coalition that I recorded at CDC and that is going to be at the very end of this podcast so please listen all the way through for that portion too. All right. Well I suppose we should get to talking to Carol Pandak right now. Yeah let's get to it. All right uh, on the other side you will hear our interview with Carol. And now we're joined by Carol Pandak, who is the director of Polio Plus. Polio Plus is Rotary's um, polio eradication effort. They're working to get rid of polio once and for all um, from every little corner of the globe, which is amazing. Welcome, Carol. Thank you very much. So I think a lot of people who listen to our show regularly know that Rotary does work on polio. Do you think that not a lot of people actually are clear on what Rotary is? And so I'm wondering if you could just give us a couple sentences about what Rotary is and um, and why they should join a Rotary club near them. Sure. Thank you. Um, and again, good to be here. Um, so Rotary is an international organization comprised of Rotary clubs all around the world in some 200 countries and geographic territories. There are some 32,000 Rotary clubs um, and um, Rotary clubs have all sorts of initiatives that they work on from community-based activities, but also the primary goal of Rotary International um, which is the, mem- the organization of all the Rotary Clubs, is the uh, global effort to eradicate polio, which we have been working on actually since 1979. We did our first polio immunization campaigns in the Philippines, um, and that was followed by launching our Polio Plus pro- program all over the world. That is really fascinating. And I just wonder, how did Rotary get involved in polio in particular? Was there a person who championed it or was it sort of a big vote? How did that come about? 
Yeah, quite interesting. You know, when Rotary first did its first polio campaign in the Philippines in 1979, you know, smallpox had uh, been declared eradicated. Um, at the same time, Rotary was celebrating 75th anniversary and was looking for a project that could have equal impact um, as something like smallpox. We have a, a gentleman, Dr. John Sever, who is a, a renowned pediatrician. Uh, he was working at the National Institutes of Health. He's also a member of Rotary, who had a conversation with the president of Rotary, who asked the question, you know, is there anything else out there like smallpox that Rotary could take on? And uh, Dr. Sever uh, suggested a polio immunization because um, volunteers could do it. And Rotary is a volunteer organization. So volunteers can administer the vaccine given it's an oral polio vaccine. So there was a consideration uh, by the organization about uh, taking something on uh, that would have global impact and the organization determined to take on polio immunization. So tell us what the status is now of polio in the world and, and what our challenges are looking forward to eradication. Yeah, so we've made tremendous progress in polio eradication. So Rotary launched its Polio Plus program um, in 1985. We, it was a fundraising campaign to raise $120 million to immunize the world's children against polio over a five-year period, under five um, under five age. Um, and in 1988, uh, we had raised $247 million, so more than twice our fundraising goal. And at that point, we were joined by the World Health Organization, UNICEF, the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, when the World Health Assembly adopted the resolution to eradicate polio. So that's when the Global Polio Eradication Initiative was formed. At that time, there were some 350,000 cases of polio globally every year. So it was 1,000 children a day uh, being impacted by polio, paralyzed, or in some cases dying. And last year, we only reported 33 cases of polio globally and only two countries, Pakistan and Afghanistan. If I remember correctly, then Nigeria was recently recently had endemic polio. How long have they been off the list? Yeah, so uh, Nigeria has not reported a, a polio virus, um, and it's important to note we're we're counting viruses, not just mm -hmm. cases. Um, and we've gone more than two years. So their okay. last last virus is in 2016, which is one of the big milestones that's coming up because Nigeria is the last country on the African continent to have reported wild polio virus. So we're coming up on a period of three years where there have been no reported cases of wild polio virus in Africa, and they could be certified sometime next year. Wow. What barriers then and challenges are in the way of eradicating these last dozens of polio cases in these two countries? Yeah, thanks. In, important to remember in countries like Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, where you have some very unique challenges, some very remote geographies, uh, there's political instability, and quite unique to those countries is the number of people, mobile populations. There are people on the move all the time, and being able to track children uh, amongst these mobile populations and to immunize them wherever they are has proven to be um, a challenge for the program. 
and especially as they move across the border. I mean, these, some of these uh, families in Afghanistan, Pakistan, you know, live sort of on both sides of the border. So um, being able to immunize children at the most, um, at the busiest border crossings is one of the stra strategies to um, track these children. Your description of the challenges makes me wonder what it's like to be a polio vaccine delivery person or volunteer who administers the polio vaccine. So can you kind of walk me through what happens? I Do I sign up through my Rotary Club and they just fly me over to Afghanistan and hand me a box full of sugar cubes with polio vaccine on it? Or is there something more complicated that happens? Yeah, the strategy to reach every child with the polio vaccine, every child under the age of five, and in some cases, um, in some of the hardest to reach areas, we've been looking at immunizing children, in some cases up to the age of 10, um, is um, these are local community-based vaccinators. Uh, what we have found in the program is that you know people trust the people that they know. And so in order to have a successful campaign in your community, um, you want to see the face of a a, a, largely a woman um, whom you trust with your children to vaccinate the children. So there are hundreds of thousands of what we call frontline healthcare workers that are, uh, are administering the program. So during the year, there will be a number of what we call national immunization days where all children under the age of five are being reached by a community-based vaccinator that goes door to door. So this is not signing up um, to go to a fixed post or necessarily to a doctor's office because often uh, times those facilities don't exist. And so it's up to uh, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative and national governments, because that's who really owns these programs, to ensure that there are enough frontline healthcare workers to reach every child, no matter where they live, with the polio vaccine multiple times per year. And, and you can imagine how labor intensive that is but if I could continue, it's not only delivering the vaccine. There's also a group of um, healthcare workers that are talking with mothers and fathers in between vaccination rounds that serves to, you know, brings messages about the importance of vaccination, uh, overall health of children, messages around nutrition and sanitation, sort of a constant presence in the community, building confidence in the importance of vaccination, the safety of vaccination, and the good intent of the vaccinators themselves. So is that in response to misinformation that's in these communities then? Is there, uh, you know, a, a, for lack of a better term, a kind of anti-vaccine sentiment when it comes to polio vaccine in some of the hardest to reach areas? I think one of our challenges is that we've been working on polio immunization, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative has for many years. You know, I've already talked about when it um, you know, started and globally in 1988. So we've been going back to communities, for example, in Pakistan, program probably started in earnest in the mid 1990s, uh, late 1990s, multiple times with the polio vaccines. And what we're hearing from communities is that they have, um, other uh, healthcare priorities um, in addition to polio, um, and also the need to understand why multiple vaccinations are required, you know, because it's important while the polio virus circulates anywhere in the world, 
um, all children are at risk. We, we need to maintain population immunity uh, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, and in many other countries uh, while we're working to eradicate polio for good. That's really fascinating. Can you tell me, is there something that Rotary members can do in their local communities that supports the the polio mission of Rotary International? Yes, thanks. Um, the What's fascinating or really inspiring, I'd say, is our Rotary members. We have Rotary members you know, all over the world. Um, we have a good presence in Pakistan, a little lighter presence in Afghanistan. So our Rotary members in the polio endemic countries are uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria that is still considered endemic, although it hasn't reported a virus since 2016, are very active working um, in administering the program, but also in raising awareness in the communities about the importance of vaccination, conducting health camps uh, to address the broader healthcare needs of the community, and advocating with government to sustain polio eradication as a priority. But if you're living in a polio-free area, which most of the world and most Rotarians are living in polio-free areas, our major role is fundraising, advocacy, and raising awareness. So from a fundraising perspective, we raise $50 million each year, which is matched two to one by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for a total of $150 million a year that we make available for polio eradication activities. So all Rotary members are encouraged to either make a direct contribution, but more importantly, hold a community fundraiser that helps raise awareness uh, about the, the fact that polio is still paralyzing children in some places of the world, which is something that I think is, is maybe forgotten in many communities. I think one of the things that people might give people pause is when we say that it's nearly eradicated or the cases are so low, I think there's the impression that it is this worth the effort and the resources to completely eradicate polio. Uh, and can you give us the case for global eradication instead of just uh, continuing to do routine immunizations and just trying to keep it from spreading? Sure. So at the current levels of routine immunization, which vary greatly across you know many countries, if we decided to you know just maintain uh, immunizations through routine immunization, the number of polio cases would increase to 200,000 every year within the next 10 years. And so we'd essentially be going back to where we've begun. Um, and that seems to be not a good option, is that all children deserve to be protected um, and safe from, from paralysis if there is a vaccine that can protect them. Also, the, um, there'll be a return on investment um, in productivity lost, et cetera. If you continue with eradication, it, um, the analysis suggests that between 40 to $50 billion would be recouped by 2035. So there's also an economic case for eradicating polio. This might be a dicey question to ask, but is there a projection at this point as to when we think global eradication might be achieved? Is there a goal for when you know you all want to have it achieved besides as early as possible? <laughs> as early as possible is, is, is the goal. The Global Polio Eradication Initiative just launched a, a new strategic plan 2019 to 2023. Um, so you know, looking at that um, as... A, a milestone 2023. But you have to have three years of no polio virus detected mm -hmm. uh, 
in a person or, or the environment um, for a three-year period before the world can be certified polio-free. So that gives us a timeline of looking at the end of 2020 as our goal for the last virus. Um, but um, I think what's important is that we stay the course because the number of polio cases have been one, under 100 for the last several years and we continue to make progress. Um, I'm gonna talk about that a little bit if I can. Uh, we are looking at the possibility on World Polio Day, which is 24 October, of the possible certification of type three eradication. So we've got some major milestones coming up um, in, the, in the global effort. I might've missed it in there, but if type three hasn't been around since 2012, why hasn't it been certified already? If it's been so many more than three years or is that, how, how is that decision made? Yeah, the Global Certification Commission um, looks at all of the data that countries submit. And I think they're just taking a, taking a careful look at uh, whether or not they're willing and ready to certify that all of the paperwork and systems are in place to ensure that, they're, they're, that type three is actually eradicated. I have a question to ask you about our, our, our listeners who don't live in Pakistan and Afghanistan, which is to say all of them. Um, I think a lot of times parents feel really complacent about the polio vaccine in their own children. Is, is there a case to be made about that vaccine being important, not only for their children's protection, but also for this global effort? Yeah, I, I just to be clear that while there is virus being detected in Pakistan and Afghanistan through the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, uh, we're immunizing children in up to 50 plus countries <clears throat> that have weak immunization systems so that we can ensure that we attain uh, and maintain high population immunity. So I just want to be clear that every year we're immunizing through the program um, up to 450 million children. That's amazing. It is yeah, it's amazing with all of those frontline healthcare workers. Um, I think the case to be made for the importance of polio immunization is that it's only a plane right away. Uh, and uh, we've seen this um, in other places. For example, if someone travels from one of the endemic areas um, and they could travel to a polio-free country, if there is low immunization rates, that can put children at risk. And so I think the that is why we're maintaining such high levels of uh, campaigns in countries that haven't detected polio for several years um, because it, 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 there are vulnerable populations. And I think we know in the United States, there are some communities that um, where immunization rates are low for polio and other disease uh, vaccine preventable diseases. So then does a polio vaccine that I give my kids here in Minnesota, does that make any difference for the children in the 50 countries that your volunteers are working so hard to reach? Well, I think it makes a difference for for those children. You know, it's it, I think it makes a difference for those children for sure, you know, in Minnesota. So that, you know, in the unlikely event that someone travels to Minnesota, who is from one of the endemic countries, um, who is carrying the polio virus, you know, that child that's gotten immunized in the United States will not contract polio. I think it also sends an important message about um, the importance 
of, of how terrifying a disease polio was at the height of the epidemics in the 1950s in the United States, where there were some 50 to 60,000 cases of polio every year, which I think people tend to uh, forget because they don't see it. And so um, I think it's uh, almost a message of solidarity with parents in countries where polio still exists um, that protecting children from polio is still an important thing to do. So then what happens afterwards? What is, um, I'm going to use the term end game because of recent movies that I've seen, but after eradication is achieved, what's the kind of end game strategy to maintain a polio free world? So there is a post-certification strategy that has been uh, documented um, by the Global Polio Eradication Initiative um, that kind of defines what sort of um, surveillance is required um, after the certification of, of eradication and what um, like does immunization have to continue after the certification of eradication um, and the strategic advisory group of experts which is reports to the world health organization um, has suggested that routine immunization for polio continue for a 10-year period after certification uh, in order to ensure um, that um, all children are protected uh, in the event of an outbreak and where might that outbreak come from? Um, the outbreak might come from a um, vaccine manufacturing facility uh, that has the wild polio virus. Um, and there is a, a breach perhaps in that facility. And I think we saw such a breach uh, with the smallpox um, uh, virus. Uh, I think the last person who actually uh, died from smallpox was the victim of a, uh, a virus that um, had escaped from a vaccine facility. So there are, um, and also there's the whole um, program of work to look at the infrastructure of polio eradication. It's the largest public health initiative ever. We have a 145 laboratories globally that are working to detect the polio virus. And so working to transition all of the knowledge, the lessons learned, the infrastructure, you have a, a very um, educated now um, group of frontline healthcare workers who can work on multiple other um, um, interventions that, that might be deemed appropriate at the national level. So there's a whole program of work to look at what happens post-certification and how to, how to transfer all of the uh, lessons learned and the infrastructure after polio is eradicated to the benefit of children um, going forward. This is also fascinating, and I could see why anyone would want to be involved in a, such a wonderful mission. In a way, it's deeply satisfying, but it's also one of those things. I was talking to Dr. Ellen Hinman, and he told me that, you know, if you're a surgeon, you can point at a patient and say, I saved that person's life. But if you work in immunization, you know you've saved lives, but you can't point at whose life you've saved. And so I'm wondering... With, with that in mind, what drew you to doing this work? Well, that's a really wonderful way to put, put the question. Um, you know, it's having the ability to have you know, an impact globally on 
probably the most vulnerable population, you know, children and then children living in some of the most remote geographies or difficult circumstances um, who have very few resources to help them should they contract polio. And so just knowing that I've had the opportunity to have um, some level of impact on that, but then also working with the extraordinary people throughout the Global Polio Eradication Initiative from, you know, from the heads of agencies to being out in the field um, with the frontline healthcare workers going door to door and appreciating um, the level of effort that it takes to reach every child with the vaccine you know, is, is very satisfying. It's certainly wonderful work. Thank you for doing that. So if people are interested in helping with this work and helping eradicate polio alongside Rotary, what can they do? How can they support the mission and how and how can they be involved? So I encourage um, anyone who's interested in, um, as you say, standing beside Rotary and this in this global effort uh, is to visit npolio.org. Um, there's information on how to make a contribution, about advocating with government for support of um, polio um, immunization funding. Um, it also um, tells you how to participate in our World Polio Day live stream events. Uh, we've got four or five happening around the world. Uh, one of them will be happening here in Evanston, and you'll, uh, people will be able to tune in and learn more about the global status of polio eradication and what needs to be done to finish the job. Perfect. And if you can get me that link, I'll put them in the show notes for everybody to, to get to. Absolutely. Stephanie will do that for sure. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was really wonderful to talk to you today and to learn all this exciting news about what's going on with polio and getting rid of it and all the wonderful things that Rotary is doing. It was very informative. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am here at ACIP day one. Uh, we just heard some presentations about uh, pneumococcal and HPV vaccines, and I'm with Sharon Humiston, Dr. Sharon Humiston, correct, uh, who is the Director of Research at, no, the, did I say that right? Associate Director for Research. She is the Associate Director for Research at Immunization Action Coalition. Hi, Sharon. Hi. So there was a lengthy discussion about HPV vaccines. Can you just talk about sort of what they're considering for today? They're talking about increasing the age for the recommended HPV vaccination so that not just young adults, but middle adults would also have the vaccine covered by insurance and to have it be recommended. So that's um, both men and women up to age 26 and then women up to age 45, correct? So that's part of it is um, the young adults having it be a unified recommendation instead of having it be different by sexes. And then also having men and women up to 45 also have it recommended for them. So the interesting thing I thought about the presentation was that um, there was a lot of immunogenicity conferred all the way up through 45 that I kind of was surprised by how, uh, how effective it was for you know, old ladies like me. <laughs> um, well, the vaccine is an incredibly effective vaccine. We, we have known that it was incredibly effective. The key is to get it in people before they're ever exposed to, to the 
uh, virus. And that's the key, is that most people are going to be exposed to it before their young adults, you know, during their teen years and, and maybe early adulthood. And so the key is to get it in everybody before they're possibly exposed. So one of the things I was looking at and, you know, understanding sort of all of those angles was they presented the data about the effectiveness for 16 to 26 and then the effectiveness for 27 to 45. But I was really curious about how effective it is for when it's given before age 13. And so do you know anything about how much more effective it is given before age 13 than it would be in those adult years? I mean, roughly. We know that most people are going to be who are going to be exposed in early, you know, late adolescence, early adulthood, and that within a few years of their sexual debut, I love that term. <laughs> it always makes it sound. Da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it sound like you're going to put on your white gloves and your gown and your tiara. But if only it had been like that. Gosh. <laughs> so within your the first few years after the sexual debut most people are going to be exposed. We, we want to get them vaccinated before any possibility of that exposure. You and I were talking before about um, how wonderful it is to be at ACIP and not have to take a vote. <laughs> yeah, these are really hard decisions because there's a public health decision where are we going to decrease the number of people by a million, you know, who are, who get the disease? Or are we going to just decrease the disease by 10,000? You know, where it's an individual, we're leaving some individuals out in the cold versus the public health money going to. So it's really tough decisions now. It's not like the you know, making the decision about vaccinating children against measles, where it's a no-brainer, everybody should get the vaccine. You know, it's incredibly, incredibly effective, incredibly easily spread. This is a little bit different, where now we're, you know, now we're splitting hairs about, well, if you are a nun who just was released, you know, decided to, you know, leave your convent, you know, like the one in a million. That's a harder decision. So whenever I'm here and these hard decisions have to be discussed and, and talked about and, you know, they really, they really toil over it, what do you think parents should take away from the fact that these decisions are hard? What, what, is, what is a good takeaway for parents to know about how the decisions are made and, whether, and their confidence in ACIP decisions? I think, first of all, the realization that the science behind this is exhaustive, um, that um, at we as Americans do put money into doing the studies. You know, we'd heard a lot about randomized control trials today. So that's wonderful. 
that we have really smart, dedicated people at ACIP who are wading through all this and that the decisions aren't just discussed at these meetings, but that there are work groups who mull over this and debate back and forth. This is an exhaustive process, and I'm so proud of the United States for doing this kind of thing. We really do lead the world, don't we? In many ways. I mean, the Canadians do a great job. The UK does a great job. Australia does a great job. And and we learn from each other's decisions, too, which is another piece that came up today, was learning from the Canadians. How are they making their decisions? I thought that was, you know, that it's there's international representation during the workgroup meetings and even at this session. Well, great. Um, any last thoughts that you have about the HPV discussion um, I think one of the things that we can't lose sight of is the original recommendation that that is going to stand. This isn't an alteration of that powerful recommendation to get kids vaccinated in their preteen years. That This is just um, icing, if you will, on the cake for people who are in special circumstances, haven't been exposed and now might be exposed. Yep, 13 for the HPV vaccine is late. Yes, right. And a friend of mine who's an OBGYN says, um, you can't give it too early, you can only give it too late. Even nine years of age isn't too early. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Karen. Our call to action today, then, is to uh, to ask all of our listeners to visit npolio.org and to find out more. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Have a great day. Bye-bye.